0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The ocean
1: has always had a hold on me, and over the years has left its mark. A chip front tooth from when I was surfing at Tourmaline in San Diego and the board snapped back on the leash and struck me in the face. The cold water of the Pacific hit an exposed nerve and the pain shot straight through to my skull. It felt as if I'd fractured my jaw, lost an entire tooth or even two. But my college roommate, floating on his board next to me in the swell, just laughed at the size of the chip. A small white dent in my thumb from shucking raw oysters on Kangaroo Island taking a break from studying Australian sea lions and sitting with a friend, kicking our feet off the wharf at American River and out over the Southern Ocean. There were bottles of Cooper's Red sparkling ale and a bucket of oysters between us. She made me laugh, and the knife jumps from the chalky, rippled shell and straight into my opposite thumb joint. A pair of pink, mottled splotches, one on each ankle, from when I was wakeboarding off St. Kitts in the Caribbean Sea. The inflatable Zodiac boat had already circled me once, dropping the tow rope, but I'd missed it. The driver, my boss, circled again, faster this time. He thought I had the rope when instead it had wrapped around my legs. As he turned hard on the throttle and sped away, the rope went with him, taking the skin off my ankles before tightening around them and pulling me under. I couldn't come up or scream. It was the kids on board who noticed. They pulled me from the water and we watched the wounds go from white to red as the blood began to pour. In the moist heat of the tropics, I was in and out of the ocean teaching scuba diving all day and it took weeks for the skin to start to heal. Seventeen years later, the scars look like tiny, raised maps of forgotten islands. Those are the scars on the surface, the ones you can see, the ones I can touch. But as it is with the sea, it's really about what lies beneath.
0: Shannon Leone Fowler is a marine biologist and writer. Since her doctorate on Australian sea lions, she's taught marine ecology in the Bahamas and Galapagos, led a university course on killer whales in the San Juan Islands, Spent seasons as a marine mammal biologist on board ships in both the Arctic and Antarctic, taught graduate students field techniques while studying Weddell seals on the Ross Ice Shelf, and worked as a science writer at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. Her new memoir is Traveling with Ghosts. Thank you for joining me, Shannon.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is such a, a beautiful book, and it begins with an epigraph. And I think that this epigraph is really important. It, so tell us about that epigraph and why you chose it.
1: Well, I, I had originally started with the scene in the temple, and my editor wanted something else to kind of bring the reader in. I think it was quite an abrupt start. And to I'm not quite sure how I even thought of the scars. I guess for me, a lot of... A lot of what people see on the surface when they see a person, they make assumptions and presumptions about what that person is—a mother, a marine biologist. But there's all—all of us have all these things that you can't see that we're carrying around. Um, And I guess I wanted to talk about that—that there all of all of us have lived through most of us incredibly difficult periods in our lives that no one knows about. That on the surface you look. Perfectly healthy. You look fine, unless unless what happened to you was something traumatic, like a car accident. That you do carry around with you. That I feel like I'm I'm carrying this around, and that it's not visible to people. So I guess that's what I wanted to talk about, and that ha- also how important my relationship with the ocean has been.
0: It's a relationship that started early in your life. Your grandfather down in La Jolla.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So very young. My grandfather was a physical oceanographer at Scripps. And I used to spend summers down there, and I just fell in love with the ocean. I think growing up in an inland town, the ocean seemed this magical place of infinite possibilities.
0: This is a book; is a kind of a hard topic to talk about.
1: It, it can be. I mean, I and I think a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about mm-hmm. a lot of the subjects in it.
0: So tell us, I guess the. The central incident in this book it's alluded to in the in the dust jacket. so you're not giving anything away because it happens no. practically in the first part of the book.
1: No, yeah, I mean I didn't I don't want to write a book where it was a surprise. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of start there because it is it's it's the central part of the book really. I mean everything revolves around that and that's the death of my fiance. I was twenty eight years old he was twenty five we were we'd been traveling around China where he proposed and he really wanted to take a trip to Thailand to just have a break. China in 2002 was not a very easy country to travel around. It was hard work. And so he wanted to go somewhere where it would just be easy and relaxing and we could just sit on a beach. And we went to Thailand. We'd been there about a week. And he was stung by a box jellyfish. We were together in the water. We were kissing at the time. And he was dead on the beach within three minutes. And I was halfway through a PhD in marine biology as I said, I was 28 years old, so figuring out how I was going to move forward after that is really what this book is is, is about. I mean, it's not like I have an answer at the end. It's not like everything ties up neatly in a bow, but it started the journey, really, in a lot of ways.
0: Well, there is no answer because this book no. is about process. Yeah. And, it, and one of the, the things about this book is that you realize, as I realized as I was reading it, was that it takes us through the entirety of grief in a way that we usually don't actually see it because usually grief says, bad thing happened, they got over it, mm-hmm. now we're on to the next thing. Yeah. And this book is about, you don't get over it.
1: No, no. Well, I, I think a lot of us who've lost people don't feel like you do ever get over it over it. I think a lot of times that's... It's a fallacy. It doesn't really happen. Um, I don't think I will ever recover, move past, or get over Sean's death. I think it's been absorbed into who I am and I'm a different person because of it. It's less overwhelming and constricting than it used to be, but it doesn't mean I don't miss him. Um, But exactly what you said is, is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, that I felt like I saw a number of movies and I read books about people who'd lost lovers and the really intense grief takes place off-scene, and it's quick. You know, two scenes later, they're dating, they've they've learned some life lessons, they're a stronger person because of it, they're moving forward. And I just felt like that was not reality. Um, And so I think when I first started talking about writing this book, some people wanted it from the present day looking forward, you know, what I've learned, how I've grown, and I really wanted it much more immediate. I wanted to be in the thick of the grief in the months following Sean's death and I wanted to stay there. I didn't want to fast forward 10, 14 years, whatever it was, and be able to talk about it from this perspective. I wanted wanted to communicate what it was like those months because I felt like that was something missing in a
0: lot of books and movies that I'd read and seen after Sean's death. The immediacy and the intensity of this book is amazing and i think as we read it the the tension that you create we know pretty much everything that's going to happen but the tension that you create create by going back and forth between the period immediately after Sean's death and of his Sean's death and before and to your uh grieving travels afterwards it's you juggle that tension really well this seems like that must have been an amazing amount of work.
1: It was a lot of work to get the structure right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I wrote the pieces in a different order, so I wrote all of the Thailand stuff first. I had to write the Thailand stuff first. I had to get that out of the way. I had to get it down. Um, so everything about Sean's death I wrote first. And when I had that, A, I thought... Well, so a number of readers said it was too intense to read all at once, that I needed to break it up. Mm-hmm. And my initial reaction was, well, I had to live this, and people can't even read about it. And I was offended. I was, I was angry almost. Like- you know, I thought, well, but that's what it was like. But then I thought, actually, when I was traveling around Eastern Europe, I was constantly on back on that beach in Thailand. And I still sometimes I'm on back on that beach in Thailand, but certainly in the months following his death, that was the way my mind was. I was... I was standing in Auschwitz, and then a minute later, I would be on that beach in Thailand screaming on the sand, and then a minute later, I would remember a time where he was alive and we were happy and traveling around Spain, and so my mind jumped around that way, and so I thought it felt like an honest way to tell the story, as well as providing a bit of kind of relief between the the very difficult scenes in Thailand, um, so that was that was what I wanted to do. and it became quite a difficult structure to revise and rewrite because mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to bounce around. So whenever like my editor would say, oh, this chapter should go here, it was like, oh my God, you're kidding me. Because now I have to kind of rejig the entire structure to make it still fit. And there, it, a lot of it was emotion and tone, but I, I never have two chapters in Eastern Europe together. And I never have two chapters in Thailand together because I wanted it kind of bouncing around. So... It was, it was a difficult structure to work with, but I enjoyed it.
0: You know, it strikes me when you were talking about that, and as I read the book, I'm, I made this note several times, that what happened to you when Sean died was that you became, in a sense, I think unstuck in time, that mm. that's what grief does to you, mm. that it, it unsettles your memory and your perception of the present so much that at any moment you might be reminded of the past or hurled forward into Mm. a possible future that you know you're not going to have Mm.
1: yeah no i think that's a very good way of putting it certainly the when i think when anyone goes through a trauma event we know that it feels like time slows down because you're actually laying down more memory your brain goes into like a hyper overdrive and you're laying down more memory per time unit so per second if you want to say so that when you look back on it it feels like time slows down and then I think from that moment on, your sense of time is completely unreliable, because one thing that i that I say in the book and that I just wrote in an essay is it's the strangest feeling of that time has slowed down and sped up at the same time. Like you feel like you blink and a week has gone by, yet sometimes the hours just seem to take forever. So I think saying unstuck in time is a is a really beautiful way of putting it because. It, it's hard to stay rooted in the present. And your mind is constantly going back to the past, going back to the future that will never happen. And I think your your whole sense of time does become quite unreliable. So you, you no longer feel like you have a good gauge of how long an hour takes. I mean, when I was at the police station the day after Sean died, I didn't have a watch. And you could have told me we'd been there 20 minutes and I would have believed you. You could have told me we'd been there eight hours and I would have believed you. And my sense of time was that off that I really couldn't tell.
0: There's, at the prose level in this book, you had, there's a certain kind of a dec- raw, declaratory nature to the sentences. And I know that you were keeping a lot of journals throughout this experience. How much did you draw on those journals?
1: I drew on my journals a lot. Um, I use my journals to, to help remind me of certain incidences, details certainly. So when I say in the book how much I paid for something, it's because I know because I wrote it in my journal. Um, and some sentences, not I wouldn't say a ton, but there are definitely sentences that are lifted straight from my journal. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was, uh, there's a passage that says when I first drive in Hungary that says that I didn't know if I was if I was going to be able to do this. I, I think I was definitely too old and certainly too sad. It was something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was straight from my journal um, that I wrote at that time. So some of those some of those sentences are, are lifted straight from. And I think, I guess, I, just, I like short sentences. I like to be clear. Um, I think some of that's just a personal style thing.
0: Well, I think, too, it allows you to write in a manner so that the reader is I like that when you're know, talking about laying down memory mm. fast at different speeds mm. I think that that's what the reader does as we read through mm. this book is we're kind of following the track and there there are the very very intense impact passages yeah. where things are happening on the beach and you're not quite not even exactly aware of what's going mm. on and I wouldn't say they're more relaxed, but talk about creating those different kind of prose styles and going back and forth.
1: Well, like I said, so I wrote, I tended to write the countries all in one chunk. Mm -hmm. So I didn't necessarily write the book in the order it is at all, but I wrote all the Thailand stuff first. I had to write that first. Emotionally, I had to get that out of the way and I had to get it down and then the book kind of took place around it. And so that's probably part of it. But I think it's, it was also the intensity of Thailand. And Thailand, I was not keeping a journal. You know, I, was, I was certainly not writing in my journal that week after Sean's death. So I was very much relying on my memory. Um, I'd written some things down. I had to write down a firsthand account of his death for his insurance company. I, and I'd filled four pages there. And as soon as I got back to California, I wrote everything I could remember down about Thailand. So that would have been, um, in August, that's the same month he died. When I got back here, I wrote down everything kind of about the day before, about what we'd eaten, about what we'd done. Um, and so I, I did have those things to rely on, but I think...
0: Why were you writing?
1: I think when you lose someone, you want to be able to hold on to everything. You're scared mm-hmm. that you're going to lose something else. And so when I was traveling around Eastern Europe, I had journals and I had... A Lonely Planet Guide, and anytime I would remember a story about Sean, something funny he said, something we did once, I felt this panic. I had to write it down, because if I didn't remember it, I might not ever remember it again, and it would just be gone forever. So I think there was just this kind of compulsive need to hold on to any part of him that I could. So that's why I was writing stuff down. But I think... I think because of the way my memory worked in Thailand and Eastern Europe, that's reflected in the passages. So Thailand was really this incredibly intense, second-to-second life-or-death situation, mm-hmm. where I was trying desperately to save him, um, and then even a, even after he was dead, and I had to, I knew he was dead it was still an incredible, people were speaking to me in a language that I didn't understand. They were asking me to sign something. I didn't know if I would be blamed. They wanted male witnesses. It was, the intensity of it was, was almost unbelievable. Whereas in Eastern Europe, time, time was on my side and I had lots and lots and lots of time and I had no one to speak to. So I had all this time by myself. And so I, it was a totally different pace of living than I'd been in Thailand you know I sat down and I would just write about what I saw in a cafe um what what something what the cafe smelled like what the sounds of um, the man's laughter next to me was like what what brand of cigarettes he was smoking um and I think because I was still going back to that beach in Thailand I needed that slowing down that absorbing the details around me that taking notice of things because in Thailand Um, especially the night that he died, but even in the days following, I think your memory works in such a strange way because there are some things that are crystal clear. Like I remember the young female's backpacker's hands compressing Sean's chest. I remember exactly what they look like. But if you were to ask me how many people stood in the crowd around me, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I could guess, but I wouldn't even have a very... I know there was a crowd around us. I don't really know if it was a big crowd because I was so focused on what was ahead of me, that I have these kind of black spots of what was going on. Um, Whereas in Eastern Europe, I'm sure there were things I didn't notice, but I I wasn't in that kind of hyperdrive, so I was really slowed down.
0: I think that the details in this book really make a, a big difference. The details of, I mean, and some of them must be really, have been filled with, Emotional weight for you. I mean, I, there are certain details in this book that um, some of them are associated with Sean, but some of them just out of the blue, like the 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 turtle in yeah. the in the aquarium. Yeah. I mean, that stuff that just tore me apart. Yeah, so tur- that, I still know, find the, the turtle hard. <laughs> yeah. Talk about finding those details and and I guess experiencing them again emotionally. Did you have? you must have relived this many times as you wrote
1: this I have yeah. yeah I certainly got to the point where I kind of felt like I was done reliving it I was ready to stop reliving it um I think again I think when someone dies it's almost like you're it, it felt physically like my nerves were kind of super sensitive you know almost as if the first Layer of skin had been rubbed off. And they were. It's It's, yeah. it,
0: it's a. It was, There's a book by a famous guy, Bessel van der Kolk. The 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 body keeps the score. Okay. This is trauma. Yeah. These physical marks yeah. in the brain.
1: Yeah. And that. I mean, that's what it felt like. It mm-hmm. felt like things were more intense. Things were were more shattering. Things were. So something like the turtle was was that much hard. I mean, I would have found the turtle hard. Before Sean died, but it it was, it made, like, I think because I was already so raw, it made it that much more difficult. And I think, again, when someone dies, possibly wrongly, but often you're applying meaning to things. Mm -hmm. You know, you're finding metaphors. I mean, the lyrics of every song seem to be speaking to you. And so you see something like the turtle, and it's hard not to feel like you're the one trapped in this ridiculous concrete tank and how many years is it going to be you're beating your head against the side of the wall before you're going to get out Um, and so yeah I think and it's interesting I I did a reading last night at bookshop Santa Cruz and someone in the audience asked about how my journey through Eastern Europe has changed the way I feel about travel and I think the the biggest thing that I've realized since kind of writing this book because it was a number of years later that I wrote the book is that in this day and age I would probably have my phone and it would be a totally different journey. I would have been in constant contact with my parents. I would have been WhatsApp messaging friends. Every time I was lost, I would have pulled up a Google map because that's how people travel now. And they get a SIM card. They and it would have been I think actually a much less rich experience. I think I needed that time away from the western world and my family and friends. I needed to be by myself and although it was very hard to interact with the locals, I needed that interaction, you know, to ask someone for directions instead of just pulling up your phone and being looking looking down at a screen. Um, but I think you asking about the details and kind of noticing those details and, and being open to that and being right, it's because I, I didn't have a phone.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I think, too, one of the things I I really enjoyed was everywhere you went, for the most part, you didn't know the language no do you did you learn many of them since
1: I basically would try to learn as 10 20 you know 30 oh, okay. words in each country please sorry thank you um, <laughs> one things like that so I would do my best I think my pronunciation in some places Slovakia in particular I don't know why I just could not get the Slovak pronunciation right and Romania was tricky because unlike the Slavic languages, it's a Latin language, and so everything kept coming out as Spanish. Um, So I I tried. It it was one thing that was nice about Israel was to be around people who spoke Hebrew and who I didn't have to, and that I could just copy their language and their accents instead of kind of looking at the word in my lonely planet and trying to guess, I mean, some of the words like djenkuje in Polish, it looks nothing like, it starts with a D, and it looks nothing like the way you would pronounce it, so I tried. And to this day, like, sometimes um, I'll be in London and I'll hear someone on their phone and I recognize the the Polish, you know. I recognize enough words to know, yes, they just said yes, or they said no, or they said hello, or, you know, very basic things. But I I don't know any of the languages in more detail than that. I would recognize a lot of them.
0: The the fact that you didn't know the language Mm. was, for you, a plus. Yeah. So talk about that, because I really like that feeling of... uh, there's a comfort of being around a lot of people who are speaking in a language you don't understand. It makes yeah. you feel you don't have to under you don't have to know the detail their no. details to feel their presence.
1: Yeah, and I think to a, to an extent, you don't have to try to connect with someone Mm-mm. because you're not going to try because you both know that you're not going to get anywhere, and so there's that kind of you're off the hook a little bit. Oh, right,
0: right, exactly.
1: Um, because when I was in Australia and. And California, after Sean's death, I was obviously with people who spoke my language, and I felt like no one was understanding me. I, I might as well have been speaking a different language. Um, some of the things people were saying to me, they just.
0: Well, for example,
1: what? Uh, that you'll meet someone else, that everything happens for a reason. I mean, a lot of it's cliches, but, you know, that I should be looking for the silver lining, um, things like that. And I just. Or, or people trying to pretend like he hadn't. Even lived or died at all, you know. People talking to me perfectly Mm -hmm. normally, but completely avoiding his name, Um, and so it just made me feel like I'm not relating to these people in English. So I might as well go somewhere where no one's going to even try, and we don't have to pretend like we are relating to each other. (laughs) And so it was actually quite a relief. I mean, even when at the end of at the end of the book and the end of the journey, I end up traveling with, in particular, an Australian guy named Simon. And I, like I was, Simon. I like Simon too. I like, I, I wish I was still in touch. I've lost touch with him, which is a shame, but, um, I like Simon too. He, I think he, that happened for me at the right time. But when we first started kind of traveling together, it was accidental. We just happened to be going to the same place at the same time. And I was really ambivalent about how I felt about all of a sudden being with someone who spoke my language. I was really not sure I wanted that or was ready for that. And mm-hmm. I think it ended up It ended up probably being a good thing for me because it was kind of an introduction back into the world. I mean, Simon, I I traveled through Bulgaria with Simon, and so it was the last country I went to kind of in Eastern Europe. I still went to Malta, and then I met my mum in Spain. But um, I think it was kind of a half... It was a good halfway point. It was like, okay, I can hang out with this one person speaking English. Now maybe I'm ready to go back to the world.
0: Well, I think, too, that by covering so much distance by going to so many places with so little planning you gave yourself a distance from the world mm. and in that distance you were were able to i think rebuild yourself and you needed that distance that space to yeah. rebuild yourself back out to the rest of the world
1: yeah i think i did i mean i i do think part of it was just running
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i I, w- I was aware of that and There was this funny part of me, and I I can't explain it. Certainly, as a scientist, it wasn't rational. But I I almost thought I was gonna find Sean again. Like I thought, I think his death seemed so improbable Mm -hmm. and so unlikely that finding him in some church in Romania seemed like it was just as much of a possibility. And I knew that wasn't gonna happen. But I talk about it a little bit in a book. Right.
0: I I remember that. You know, and I'm
1: actually scanning guest books for his name Mm -hmm. or for someone from his hometown and. I don't know maybe I didn't think it would be Sean but it would almost be like someone exactly like Sean I don't know I mean it was ridiculous really but I think I also maybe it, it's a funny thing maybe like a, a year or two after after this I was in South America and I was traveling and I just kind of felt bored and I love South America, and I it was it was a great trip, but I kind of felt bored, and I realized that there was just this intensity of my life that had gone had lessened a bit, and I think there's something about going through an incredible, incredibly good or incredibly bad, and in my case, it was an incredibly bad event. That the intensity of your life is magnified. I mean, it's kind of like what we've been talking about. There's this raw sense, and so it was i mean it's almost it's almost like you're i mean i can i can imagine it's almost like being on drugs you know it's that kind of thing it's like this level of intensity that it's hard to kind of everything goes back to black and white mm-hmm. and you feel like you've lived in color even if it hasn't been a good experience it's been this incredibly intense experience and that is that can be kind of hard to come back from sometimes but but yes i think i needed the distance i needed the space i needed the time and I am very aware how lucky I was to have that. There's plenty of people, most people in the world, who would have been in my position and lost someone who would not have had the privilege of being able to take off for a few months and have that distance. I appreciate it. a lot of people might not have wanted to backpack around Eastern Europe either. That might not be their idea of, of how to get over something really difficult. But um, I, I do feel lucky that I was allowed that time in that space.
0: We'll talk about uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, why that decision? That is a, that's a, <clears throat> doesn't race to the front of the moment. No,
1: but, so I, I talk about it in my book very briefly. Um, it was really by default. So Sean and I had met in Western Europe, and we'd traveled around together there. He was from Australia, so we'd traveled around together in Australia. He died in Asia, and that, and even after his death, I had mm. not had a good experience in Asia, after that. I had great great experiences beforehand. Um, last time I'd been in South America, I'd been mugged. And it, I thought about Africa, and it just seemed a bit too intense on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of just, it felt like I just crossed off all these places, and what was left was Eastern Europe. So it was really not something, it wasn't a calculated decision to go find cultures that dealt with death differently. That was completely accidental. I wanted somewhere cold. I wanted somewhere inland. I wanted somewhere I didn't speak the language and it needed to be cheap.
0: The visuals in this book, the things you describe, all have a huge emotional weight. Mm. yeah, and what's really called for is to a certain extent some numbing out.
1: yeah, oh, that pain yeah. is
0: very intense. yeah. And that seems like the right choice to make. Yeah.
1: And I, people, I was sending long emails and postcards back home while I was there, and a lot of people said, "You've you seem to have ended up in a place that's strangely suited to your mood." Because Eastern Europe, I mean, it was cold; it was freezing when I was there. It was winter, but it's they're quite cold cultures. They're quite distant cultures. Um, there, there's a lot of of space in between people. I mean, it was one of the things when I thought about where I was going to travel. I thought Latin America is it's just it's too in your face. You know, people want to... They're friendly. They want yeah. to get to know you. They're, and people stand really close to you. And and Eastern Europe doesn't have that. I mean, everything. There's this distance. There's this space between people. And so it's what I wanted. It's what I needed. And it ended up working out really well for for me at that point in my life.
0: You are, have spent a great deal of time in the Monterey Bay area. Mm, yep. And so there was always... In the back of your mind, always this place to come home to, which was, to a degree, your home. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about how the Monterey Bay area, how you perceived home when you were all these places who were not home. Mm.
1: Well, I guess, so I'd, I was halfway through my PhD, PhD at UC Santa Cruz, and I'd been, I had a condo in Capitola. Where I was living. I'd lived on campus as a grad student my first year, which was amazing, running through the redwoods. um, And I love Santa Cruz. I have always loved Santa Cruz. But when, before Sean died, I used to do these runs, New Brighton State Beach. I would run up and down the cliffs, I would run along the water. And my lab had moved down to Long Marie Lab. So it's literally like right, you, you know, you hear the sea lions, you hear the surf. And it, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I mean, people pay a lot of money to live here. But after Sean died, I could not face the ocean. And so I guess one thing that I like about Santa Cruz is there's, you can go inland and you've got these amazing redwood forests. And so that's what I did. I, I ran inland and I stayed away from the coast. But I kept, I mean, I, I guess I kept it in the back of my head um, the whole time i was in eastern europe as i knew if I, I knew i wanted to try to go back to my phd which would mean going back to santa cruz and i wanted to do that and i i guess i just needed a bit of time away from it. i think santa cruz is so wrapped up in the ocean it's such a part of what santa cruz is you know the surf culture and the monterey bay aquarium and i mean the, the amazing animals and sea life I mean you know you, you go for a walk on Westcliff and you see sea otters and you probably see dolphins and you see pelicans and we it really is it's such a fantastic place from and from a natural scientist point of view and so I was always looking forward to that but I knew I kind of needed to I needed some space and some distance first um, and when I when I did finally come back to my PhD it was still hard because, one thing I hadn't really expected was oh, there was just jellyfish everywhere. Like in Capitola, there were these beautiful blown glass sculptures and there was a jellies exhibit at Monterey Bay. And, you know, I'd walk past a colleague and they'd have this screensaver of a jellyfish or someone else would have a calendar. And because jellyfish are beautiful. I understand that. I used to think that. Um, I still kind of have trouble looking at them, but they were, they were kind of everywhere. The first talk I went back to at UC Santa Cruz for my PhD happened to be a talk about the state of our oceans and someone the guy giving the talk said that jellyfish are the cockroaches of the sea and they're expanding and they're ever and I was just like oh I was in the middle of the aisle I was like I'm gonna have to leave I don't know if I can listen to this um but I but I was able to come back and I think slowly I was able to come back to the ocean and come back to Santa Cruz and now I I live in London but I spend summers here and I love coming back here. My kids are always asking when we're going to come back. I mean, just the last time we were here, my oldest, who's now six, said, who decided we were going to live in London? And I was like, yeah, talk to your dad. <laughs> talk to your dad about that decision. Um, so Santa Cruz has always been a really important part of me. And I guess I just needed, I needed to reconcile myself with the ocean after my fiancé died there before I could come back to that.
0: In a sense, I think this book is about two love affairs. Mm, Yeah, definitely. You and Sean and you and the ocean. Definitely. And I think that's uh, tracing the arc of those two. is It's beautiful and it's powerful. And your tentative reconciliations with the ocean as you go through your tour Mm. are really, those are really powerful little pieces Mm. of this book. And when you were there, did you... In the moment, did you realize how important those, those moments were to you?
1: I did, yeah. I mean, I, I think because I had the PhD that I, I knew I wanted to come back to, I was consciously trying to get back into the water. I mean, I had this idea when I originally booked the trip. I thought I would go through Eastern Europe, I'd visit the two wonderful women in Israel, And then I'd spend some time in Malta, and I thought I'd go back in the ocean then. I'd fall back in love with the water. I'd finish in Spain where I met Sean. My mom would meet me there, and I'd come back to my PhD. And, of course, it didn't work like that. Um, I got to Malta, and I was nowhere near being ready to get in the water at all. But I, I tried to take these little steps, so I went to the aquarium in Croatia, and I took a ferry in Croatia, which was the first time I had been on the water since coming back from the island that Sean died on. Um... So it, those things were pretty conscious. I thought I would get there faster, but it took me a lot
0: longer. Uh, isn't that always yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the case? Pet names. Oh, yeah. yeah. There yeah. are a lot of pet names in this book, and it's yeah. kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, I and I never liked Miss. I never liked it, but yeah.
0: Uh, he had pet names. Everybody had pet names. Is that something, I mean... That's an interesting, uh, I guess, observation of yourself. Yeah. And I, but I think everybody has pet names yeah, for those I in their lives. Yeah, I think so. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, I, all of my kids still have nicknames. And I, Sean definitely, I mean, he made up most of the nicknames for his friends. And he certainly made up, I mean, know well, why he didn't make up Miss, but he certainly stuck by Miss no matter no matter the fact that I didn't like it at all. Um and it was just so characteristically him. Um, I know it, it's a little confusing for some readers at first because it's not a very common name, and I really God, I really didn't like it when he used it. When, <laughs> um, but I don't know, it was just so him. And I couldn't write it without using it. You know, the mm-hmm. dialogue would have just felt wrong and fake if I hadn't used it because that's who he, he used my name. He used that name a lot for me.
0: I love in this book, one of the my most favorite aspects of this book was that I was halfway through and I loved these two Israeli girls. Yeah, you know. They're amazing. They're amazing. But it was halfway through before I actually learned their names. Yeah. I think that that was a wonderful decision on your part. Well, thank you. So it, talk about these two women. They they are amazing people. Do You, you must still... Do you, have you talked to them recently?
1: So I, I speak to Talia all mm. the time. All the time. I'm trying to get back in touch with Anat right now because I've lost... I've, Fairly recently lost contact with her, and so I'm trying to get back in touch with her now. But Talia just had a baby, and so I sent her some clothes from my youngest, who's also a girl, um, and I sent her the book. It took a long time to get there, and I kept saying I sent it weeks ago. And Talia kept saying, "This is Israel. It's no surprise. It's Israel. No need to worry." But it finally got there. So um, yeah, I talked to her quite a lot. I know I'll see her again someday. I would love to take my kids there. Um, I'd Your love tri- for her to come to London. What mm. was that?
0: Your trip to Israel is amazing. Yeah, and it, it was amazing. it's very powerful and fits in perfectly in the context of the book, especially mm. this uh, perception of danger.
1: Yeah. And, I, I mean, my parents were not happy about me going there, but... You went,
0: it, not the best time to travel no, to Israel, it, it either. was a
1: really bad time. I mean, it was probably one of the worst times. It was really the height of the violence. Um, and it was pretty intense, Um I think, yeah, certainly it's it's quite a bit safer now, um, but I think I would never have gone if I hadn't been visiting those two girls, you know, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been something I would have done on my own, although who knows, that's, that's, I, I went a lot of places that I probably shouldn't have and wouldn't have otherwise, um, but being there with locals, and especially Talia, I stayed with Talia's family in she was very, very protective of me. I mean, I think we were even more cautious than she would have been if I hadn't been there because she kept saying, one traumatic event is enough for you right now. You do not need to be in the middle of a suicide bombing or something like that. So it was, yeah, it was a very intense experience. And it's something that I'm, I guess I'm always surprised some of the reviews are picking up on the relationship and, and, and remark really remarking on how amazing those two girls are and like how many 21 year olds would have done something like that you know kind of insisted on getting involved in someone else's tragedy and not taking no for an answer and i think they are just the most astounding remarkable young women to do that Um, and i honestly do not know where i would be today if they hadn't i mean i certainly would have signed that document his death would have been declared a drunk drowning I think a lot of things could have ended very differently.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the the cause of this. Uh, the box jellyfish. This is one of the planet's deadliest animals, mm-hmm. um, and not a whole lot of warning about this. So Todd, no. I mean. This is a very. This is an interesting. Uh...
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there are so many ironies. Unfortunately, the irony that I was a marine biologist and my fiance died in the ocean. Um, the irony that he was Australian and box jellyfish are really from Australia and mm-hmm. they were thought to be confined to waters off North Australia, and then he was all the way in Thailand and ends up getting killed by a box jellyfish. So, previously. Many years ago, box jellyfish were thought to be confined to waters off North Australia. There were very predictable seasons, and Australia had gotten really good at coping with this. So they used nets, they shut beaches, people wore stinger suits, there are vinegar stations. There's a lot of education, a lot of awareness, and there are very few fatalities in Australia because of it. Very few. Um with global warming, the populations have expanded, the seasons have become much less predictable and the territories are everywhere. So I mean you're talking all over the tropics now. And when Sean was killed, he's only the second documented foreigner death in Thailand that was officially recognized to be a jellyfish sting. I think there are, I'm I mean I no one can say for sure, but I I would be willing to put a lot of money that there are more and there were probably more before Sean. Um if I had been stung as well, I have no doubt in my mind we would have been categorized as a drunk drowning. Both of our families would have been told we were drunk and we drowned. And it makes it really hard to to know to kind of quantify the danger there. Mm-hmm. But since Sean's death, there have been six confirmed fatal stings in Thailand alone. And again, I think there are probably many more. There was a very close near death last summer, a Russian two-year-old boy who amazingly lived... Um, and I think, I, I don't want, there's, there's no need to kind of scare people. Um, obviously the odds are still very low, but I also think prevention is very simple. You wear a stinger suit, which is basically like a rash guard. It's long sleeves, it's long arms, long arms and long legs. It costs maybe 40 bucks and you're pretty good. I mean, it's not a hundred percent because you could still get stung on the face, but really, if Sean had been wearing that, he'd still be alive today. And especially for kids, it's UV protection. I mean, I have had a number of friends who've gone to Thailand since with their families, and I say, you can do what you want with yourself, but just put your kids in stinger suits. And it, it's simple and it's easy. And so, you know, if we, if we could get a bit more awareness out there, again, the chances are small. But the chances are small doesn't mean anything when it's your lover, your son, who's died.
0: You know, one of the aspects of this book that struck me is how much our lives are affected by luck. Yeah. It's yeah. not, you can be rich, famous, smart, skilled, mm. whatever, and all of those things may have come to you by virtue of luck.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and whatever whatever you bring to the table, luck can quite quickly um, take it away. Yeah. And I think that your observations of this are, are, are pretty powerful.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that Eastern Europe really made me realize is, is the the flip side is mm. as an American, you are born with so much on your side. Oh. And just from being born in this country and going around places in Romania and looking at the opportunity and luck and chance that was their, the reality of their lives, which was completely different and it's one of the things that I really brought home in Romania I meet a woman on the train in and she doesn't know why I'm there but all she knows is that I've lived in Australia and I'm from California and she's telling me how lucky I am and she's right she was absolutely right because you know I I, I was afforded many opportunities that they wouldn't have and yet it, it's no protection either is it just because I was born in America and I was lucky to be born here doesn't mean that just just because we follow the rules things aren't going to happen to us
0: in this book one of the things you do is to I think externalize your life actually in a sense externalizes many of our things that affect all of us you know self-doubt grief mm-hmm. uh, guilt I mm-hmm. mean guilt is a big one yeah guilt was a big one still and, is yeah <laughs> um, there's a lot of uh, rich personal details in this. Were you comfortable with that? Did you have to ratchet it back? I um, like the honesty. I mean, it felt really honest.
1: Yeah, well, I I guess I the only way I was able to write the book is kind of not ever thinking about other people reading it, really. Because I think if you start to think, what are my kids going to think when they're 16 and they read about an intimate scene in the book? Or, you know, what is... What's my future boss gonna think when he reads, you know, something like this? And I think you just can't even think about it. So I wrote the book, really, for myself, and trying not to ever go down that road of, um, what are people gonna think of it? And when I first, I mean, it's only it was, it only just published yesterday, but I, there was an excerpt in the Guardian on the weekend, and it, you know, it's kind of been coming out into the world. And at first, people have been saying. You're so brave to put this out here, you're so brave. And I, at first I was kind of thinking, you know, I was honest, I don't know. But but then you get some nasty comments online and you think, I'm never going to read comments again. But yes, now I can see why people say that I'm brave. Because it, it it's hard to expose yourself in that way and then have someone criticize you. I mean, I think when you write a novel, it's different. And even just going through like the editorial process, you know, well, you don't come off across as very likable here. It's like, but that's the way it was, you know? Well, I
0: think that's one of the the strengths of this book is uh, you create yourself as a character who is real. And whether or not we don't get the feeling you're trying to make yourself come off as likable. Yeah. That makes us like you, well, actually.
1: And, yeah, and I, like I, I thought that was important because I know when I read a book and someone comes off as perfect, I don't trust them. And so I think they're hiding something. And so I wanted to be honest and I wanted to be, I wanted to be real. Um, yeah.
0: Do you think you'll be writing more books? Or are you working on another? <laughs>
1: know. So my mom's a writer and I never got how as soon as one book was done, people would say, so have you started another book? And I was always like, yeah, why hasn't she? Um, I'm a single mom of three kids who are six, just turned four and almost two and I've been surprised how much work has been involved with this book, even though I technically finished. So um, I would absolutely like to write more books. I have a number of ideas, all nonfiction. Um, what I'm most interested in doing is writing more about science and my personal experiences with science, because I think... In the current political climate, I think science communication is incredibly important. I think we've failed in a lot of ways because of the discussions that are happening in DC. I think scientists have failed communicating the way they need to communicate. Um, And I think I would love to write popular science. I feel like I would like to believe that I have a background that's well-suited because I have a PhD and a background in marine biology, I also have the nonfiction writing, that it would be something i would i would enjoy doing that would be incredibly important and i think people really only listen when it's a personal experience you know if if you're writing something about global warming and these are the statistics and these are the graphs it doesn't mean anything to people you have to say i was in the arctic i saw this happen i saw the ice caps disappearing i saw the disappearance of narwhals and what that did to the indigenous communities who relied on them for hunting i think a personal spin always always brings it home for people. And so mostly what I would be interested in at the moment is, is doing some more popular science, kind of personal essay. Um, but yes, yes, I have ideas for books. No, I haven't started yet.
0: I've been speaking with Shannon Leon Fowler. Her new memoir is Traveling with Ghosts. Thank you for joining me, Shannon.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Rick. Thanks. <music>